0: Hey guys, Raymond here. Some of you know that we have another portion of our podcast called The Monday Post on our website, unreliablenarratorspodcast.wordpress.com. Sophie and I write to each other on this blog um, every Monday, and we cover topics that are not included on the Stowa Mars Hill list. And um, what we're going to do now is we're actually going to be recording portions of those posts and posting them here on the podcast every Monday. This is sort of a side side hustle and um, isn't part of the main show, but we thought it would be a helpful, fun, and maybe entertaining and informative uh, side of the show that might add a little flavor to things and um, will be shorter than most of the time than our than our usual episodes. So in today's episode, uh, in today's post, I'm writing to Sophie and talking about anthropomorphism and a defense of talking animals. Well, hope you enjoy. Sophie, I think there's a reason why the author of Genesis depicts the ideal paradisal state of man as within a tended garden. Deeply embedded within many cultures is a consensus on the idea that paradise is a garden. But why is paradise a garden? I think it has something to do with the God-given mandate of man's proper relation to nature, something that is admittedly hard to define, but is nonetheless an eminently important question. I once had a poetry professor who ran his seminars by a single interdiction, no talking animals. He encouraged us instead to produce more sophisticated poetry in the form of social critiques, by which he meant the relevant issues of today. It was not surprising, then, that my five-page poem about talking rabbits was not received with much enthusiasm. Of course, I don't blame the professor for being biased. I myself am heavily biased towards talking animals, and would happily dole out unmerited rewards to any student who writes me a poem on the subject. Some people really don't like talking animals, to which I respond, How can you not love talking animals? I confess I have no patience with such people. This nonsense cannot go on. I am consequently burdened, in today's post, to make a thorough defense of talking animals. We live in a post-Newtonian view of the universe, which presupposes that the world is made up of inanimate objects. But we do not really believe the world is made up of inanimate objects. We recite the laws of motions mechanically, while in the meantime busy ourselves with drawing constellations and tracing out faces in clouds. We make excuses for our impulse to animate the universe. The psychologists call it pareidolia, the tendency to impose pattern or meaningful interpretation on an object or stimulus where there is none. However, I believe that the artistic technique of anthropomorphism, that is, giving non-human things human attributes, is more than a curious psychological disorder. Done correctly, anthropomorphism has the potential to be deeply revelatory about who we are as human beings. Anthropomorphism is a powerful tool in storytelling because it enables the artist to explore the world in ways he could not have done otherwise. The artist endeavours to see the world in a new way, and anthropomorphism always lends itself to this endeavor. When we look at a matchbox, it does not occur to us that it has any other use than for holding matches or that a paperclip has any other use than for clipping papers. Nor do we have incentive to contemplate the possible uses for such objects, especially if we were writing one of those dull, critically acclaimed social commentaries for adults. But if you are writing a story in which the protagonist is a mouse, it would seem the most natural thing in the world for him to sleep in a matchbox and use a paperclip as a coat hanger. In doing so, the artist of anthropomorphism achieves the goal of every artist to aid people in seeing the world in a new way. You don't really look at a matchbox until you have the thought that it might be a cozy thing to snuggle up inside. Picture a mouse sleeping in a matchbox, and it greatly deepens your appreciation for matchboxes. Talking animals also enables the artist to interact with nature in a manner that can only be achieved through imaginative literature of this kind. You may look at a bead of dew and say it is beautiful, but a poet is not going to be satisfied with merely pronouncing it beautiful and leaving it there. We must somehow taste it, touch it, become one with it. Wordsworth tried to do this, but I would argue that his results fell short of his aim. As he wrote wrote in his poem, I Wondered Lonely as a Cloud. For oft, when on my couch I lie, In vacant or in pensive mood, They flash upon that inward eye, Which is the bliss of solitude, And then my heart with pleasure fills, And dances with the daffodils. Some nature lovers may find this celebration of nature satisfying. I do not. You cannot be one with nature while you are lying on a couch in vacant or impensive mood. Modern people tend to think that being connected with nature means nothing but rusticating in the pastoral English countryside with a good book. But if you really want to be part of nature, you cannot do it as a tourist. You must participate with her. It reveals much about the necessity of participation by the very fact that we personify nature by calling her a mother. How can we enter more deeply into this portrait of nature? Jack London well understood the participation with nature and made good use of his talents in classics like White Fang and The Call of the Wild, books I thoroughly enjoyed as a teenager. But London saw nature as an evolutionary Darwinian of the old school, and his paradigm compels him to retain what he supposes is his sense of realism. Long bodies of prose are dedicated to the internal thought life of Buck, sometimes with thoughts that seem so human that they are almost laughable. But it is only laughable because London pins the tale with such seriousness. I think his creative reserves would have opened like a floodgate if he had simply opened the mouths of the beasts and let them talk. In the most recent film adaptation, all the dogs are computer animated. Here are a couple examples from The Call of the Wild showing London at his best. And when... On the still cold nights, he pointed his nose at a star and howled long and wolf-like. It was his ancestors, dead and dust, pointing nose at star and howling down through the centuries and through him. And his cadences were their cadences, the cadences which voiced their woe, and what to them was the meaning of the stillness and the cold and dark. And again... With the aurora borealis flaming coldly overhead, or the stars leaping in the frost dance, and the land numb and frozen under its pall of snow, this song of the huskies might have been the defiance of life, only it was pitched in minor key, with long-drawn wailings and half-sobs, and was more the pleading of life, the articulate travail of existence. So Wordsworth pitches the beauty of nature in the major key, and London pitches the cruelty of nature in the minor. Returning to the picture of a dewdrop, we see that there are many approaches to engaging with this image poetically, most of which I believe lack some fundamental quality. Wordsworth celebrates its beauty, but has no use for it. He does not praise the dewdrop so much as he praises the mood it arouses in him from the comfort of his couch. London may find use for the dewdrop, but he destroys it in the process. He seizes the dewdrop in his fist, drinks the life out of it, and tramples it underfoot with a roar of triumph. Both London and Wordsworth reveal the fundamental problem of our relation to nature. Man has fallen. We have been exiled from Eden. I tend to prefer London to Wordsworth because he is more forthright about the pain of our separation. The long-drawn wailings and half-sobs of London's wolves bears more accurate kinship to the picture of nature given to us by St. Paul, for we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now, Romans 8.22. Although I differ from London on some scores, he is certainly more Pauline in his attitude towards nature than Wordsworth and his dancing with the daffodils. But neither writer accomplishes what can be accomplished more effectively through the literary device of talking animals. The anthropomorphist does not gush about nature from his couch like Wordsworth, or crush it under his thumb like London. Instead, he invokes the imagination and says, If a grasshopper had a morning toilet, it would probably consist of tugging on a blade of grass and splashing his head with the bead of dew that rolls off the tip. In doing so, the anthropomorphist gets the best of both worlds, so to speak. He has the liberty to celebrate the beauty of nature without destroying it. Imbibe the animal with human qualities, and we get the imaginative portrait of a person united with nature who is not tainted by the effects of the fall. Another difficulty London faces with his own artistic constraints is that he must find ways to embellish the life of a wolf to make his story interesting, but grant your animals the gift of speech, and suddenly everything, no matter how mundane, becomes a piece of poetry. Take this passage from E.B. White's Charlotte's Web, where he describes the average day of the pig Wilbur. Breakfast at 630 Skim milk, crusts, middlings, bits of doughnuts, wheat cakes with drops of maple syrup sticking to them, potato skins, leftover custard pudding with raisins, and bits of shredded wheat. Breakfast would be finished at seven. From seven to eight, Wilbur planned to have a talk with Templeton, the rat that lived under his trough. Talking with Templeton was not the most interesting occupation in the world, but it was better than nothing. From eight to nine, Wilbur planned to take a nap outdoors in the sun. From 9 to 11, he planned to dig a hole or trench, and possibly find something good to eat buried in the dirt. From 11 to 12, he planned to stand still and watch flies on the boards, watch bees in the clover, and watch swallows in the air. 12 o'clock, lunch time, middlings, warm water, apple parings, meat gravy, carrot scrapings, meat scraps, stale hominy, and the wrapper off a package of cheese. Lunch would be over at 1. From 1 to 2, Wilbur planned to sleep. From two to three, he planned to scratch itchy places by rubbing against the fence. From three to four, he planned to stand perfectly still and think of what it was like to be alive and to wait for Fern. At four would come supper. Skim milk, provender, leftover sandwich from Lurvie's lunchbox, prune skins, a morsel of this, a bit of that, fried potatoes, marmalade drippings, a little more of this, a little more of that, a piece of baked apple, a scrap of upside-down cake. Wilbur had gone to sleep thinking about these plans. One has to admire the patience of E.B. White. No one would be able to write a passage in such detail unless he sat on a pail in a farmhouse from sunrise to sunset and did nothing but observe the activities of a pig. This would doubtless be a very boring game for Jack London, who would find no opportunities under such circumstances to wax eloquent about the ruthless struggle for survival. Wordsworth, too, would have lost interest, for he refuses to get his hands dirty. He writes remotely from his couch, not from the intimate vantage point of a rusty aluminum milk pail. But E.B. White has a better perspective. He sits by the pig pen and imagines what a pig might be thinking if he could talk. It becomes much easier to pass the time if you indulge in a little... Paradolia, and grant your subjects the gift of speech. Nature becomes a more worthy portrait if she is populated with animate beings, rather than purely deterministic ones driven by the blind forces of chance. Given that both animal and animate share a common ancestral root in the Latin anima, meaning spirit or breath, it seems to me that there is nothing more fitting and natural than for animals to be, well, animated. Of course, the most obvious and incriminating objection to my argument is that animals don't talk. Yes, animals don't talk. But if we embark on the creative pursuit of assuming that animals could talk, it forces us to view the world not as a cold and lifeless entity, but as a living, breathing thing. A thing that can be conversed with, and danced with, and sung to. And such a principle is fundamentally true. The heavens are alive. Does not the psalmist insist they declare the glory of God? Anthropomorphism, therefore, is a valuable and instructive tool, which we should regularly employ as artists to declare his glory. Jesus himself used anthropomorphism when he said that if the world did not praise him, even the stones themselves would cry out. Hyperbole? Yes, and I believe every word of it. See you Monday.